You are now listening to the March 26th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, He taught them to ask for God's will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We know well that God's will is the most good and perfect will. However, we also know that His good and perfect will isn't always what seems good to us. When Jesus prayed, Yet not my will, but yours be done. He was praying that God's good and perfect will would be done. And that is, that God's plan of redemption will be accomplished as he would soon hang on the cross. Jesus went through a time of suffering and hardship for God's will to be done. In addition, many apostles suffered and were martyred as they followed God's good will. We know that God's will is good and perfect, but it's not easy for us to confess, Lord, I want your will to be done. Just as Jesus prayed for his Father's will to be done, we must grow until we can pray that whatever God's will might be, that his will be done. Among the hymns we know well, there's a hymn that contains such a confession. Let's listen for a moment. My Jesus, as Thou wilt, oh, may Thy will be mine. Into Thy hand of love I would my all resign. the first verse. My Jesus, as thou wilt, O may thy will be mine. Into thy hand of love I would my all resign. Through sorrow or through joy, conduct me as thine own, and help me still to say, My Lord, thy will be done. Benjamin Schmalk wrote this hymn. He was born as a pastor's son in Silesia, Germany in 1672. He followed after his father and studied theology and became a pastor. In 1701, he returned to his hometown when he was 29 years old. When he returned to his hometown, many lives and property were lost in Europe due to the religious war between Catholics and Protestants that occurred for 30 years. Also, the bubonic plague entered Germany where he lived, so it was truly a period of hopelessness. In what situation was he able to confess, My Jesus, as thou wilt? We'll find out through a drama. Pastor Benjamin finished his study and returned to his hometown with his wife and two young children and began his ministry. During the religious war at that time, the Protestants lost much power and couldn't conduct ministry as they wished due to the severe persecution of the Roman Catholics. Without permission from the Roman Catholics, patient visitations and funeral services were not allowed. Despite all this, Pastor Benjamin and his wife went to visit each church member and served them and cared for them. They continued to share the gospel with a passion for the church members for three years. One day, 
Pastor Benjamin and his wife left their two sons at home and spent the whole day going to the church members' houses and serving them. Then, they were returning home. Dear, thank you for all your hard work today. No, it wasn't hard work. Everything is for the Lord. How are you feeling? You were coughing a lot while praying today. Get some good rest tonight, so you will have to string the go to another region tomorrow. Yes, let's hurry. Our children have been waiting for us the whole day. Let's hurry and make a delicious dinner for them. Yes, let's do that. Dear, it seems like there's a fire in the direction of our house. No, it can't be our house. Let's hurry and see. As Pastor Benjamin and his wife were running towards the burning house, they saw something they didn't want to believe. The burning house was indeed their own. Children! Children! Dear, I don't see our children. Pastor Benjamin's house, which was made of logs, quickly burned to ashes. Pastor Benjamin and his wife found the bodies of their two sons as they were burnt to death among the ashes of the house. The couple held the bodies of their two sons and were at a loss for words. They lost their senses and they were in a state of astonishment. They cried and called out to God. The intense cry of the parents' grief echoed in the sky. Lord, Lord, how can such a thing happen? Pastor Benjamin cried and lamented before the Lord with a forlorn heart. However, at that moment he thought of Jesus, who prayed at Mount Gethsemane before carrying the cross, and his sweat was like drops of blood. Oh Lord, now I know why you prayed with such anguish. Now I understand your prayer. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You allowed me to go through this hardship, so I could realize this truth. Lord, just as you did, I will also pray that our Father's will be done, and consider it joy. Pastor Benjamin realized that the desire of Jesus Christ was that his Father's perfect will be done, so that God's glory would be revealed. He promised before the Lord to consider it joy for God's will to be done. He turned this promise into a poem, and it became the hymn, My Jesus as Thou Wilt. A person who can be joyful about God's will being done is someone who has complete faith in God. Without faith, we cannot ask for God's will to be done. More than anyone, Jesus who prayed, Yet not my will but yours be done, had faith towards Father God. We who became children of God through Jesus Christ must be like Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. For the billions of people living here on earth, there is a different will for each of them. However, in heaven, there is only one will, and it is the will of the Father in heaven. Only His will was fulfilled in the past, and it is still being fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled in the future. Christians living here on earth, we must hope that His will be done through us. Romans chapter 14 verse 8 says, If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. I hope we can always have such abundant grace and thanksgiving within us. We'll end Nearer My God to Thee here. I'll see you next week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is a study of Acts Stephen. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We're going to take a look at Acts chapter 6, end of 6, and chapter 7. So why don't you get your place? I want to introduce to you the uh, where we're going. We're going to look at a man named Stephen's life and the impact that he had on the church. Well, I want to introduce you to a guy named Stephen. He's first mentioned in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, chapter um, 6, verse 5, where uh, needs arose in the New Testament church that the apostles just weren't called to take care of. So they wisely selected seven men to be the first servers, or deacons, they called them. And they were like the administrators of the organization of the church. And it worked out well. But out of all the thousands of men that could have been chosen, these seven men stood out. And they were all Jews who had come from Gentile locations and were at the Jerusalem church. And one of them that stands out, probably top of the list, is the man named Stephen. And you'll see in verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit. So uh, the others, their names are just mentioned, but when Stephen's mentioned, it's he's this guy full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Stephen, we know some about him. He's introduced to us here as being a Hellenistic Jew. Hellenistic Jews were Jews whose families lived outside of the land of Israel, probably for generations, some of them for a hundred plus years. And so they did not speak the same language that they spoke in Israel. The common language in Israel was Aramaic. That's what Jesus taught in. And the scriptures were written in Hebrew. And so Jews in Jerusalem, most of them, of course, all of them spoke Aramaic and they could read Hebrew. The services in the synagogue were in Hebrew. And they could also speak Greek, which was like the English of the day. It was a common language. However, the Hellenistic Jews, they could only speak Greek. They couldn't speak Aramaic, and they couldn't read Hebrew. And so the Hebrew Jews, I'm going to call the ones in Israel, the Hebrew Jews, they looked down on these Hellenistic Jews. And it was a problem. They even came into the church and had to be addressed uh, very, very firmly. So Stephen is uh, one of these Hellenistic Jews. Uh, I might add that they had their own synagogues because if they went to a Hebrew Jewish synagogue, they couldn't understand the Hebrew as it was read from the scripture, couldn't understand the Hebrew scriptures. So the Hellenistic Jews had their own synagogues everywhere. And even in Jerusalem, they met at separate synagogues where Everything would be in Greek. In fact, they even made a special translation of the Old Testament scriptures into Greek so that uh, they would be able to read the scriptures. Stephen was one of these men who was a part of Hellenistic synagogues. At least we know that he preached in them, he attended them, and probably he was well known in them. And by the time we see him at this point, he wasn't very well liked by them. So look at verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Throughout this, this, this early time, there are a lot of miracles that were happening uh, by the apostles. They, um, it's spoken of in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. And I was thinking, maybe like yours, what were some of these miracles? Because it's Stephen's full of grace, doing great miracles and signs. The word for great is the word mega that we get from the Greek word mega, and we get the word mega. They were mega miracles going on. So um, what were they? And I, I look back at chapter 5, and with looking at verse 12, just turn a page back, you'll see what some of these signs and wonders, these signs and miracles were. They're amazing. 
Verse 12, now many signs and wonders or miracles were regularly done among the people. This wasn't happening just once in a while. It was regularly happening by the hands of the apostles. And what were some of them? Look at verse 15. So that people would carry out the sick into the streets and the apostles, uh, they would lay them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall upon them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Well, um, problem comes along, and this will be the uh, first crisis of the early church. It's kind of a hinge point in our church history. Up until things, until now, things had been relatively even keel, but now we're going to see persecution hit the church. I want you to realize that this is happening less than a year after the day of Pentecost. So the church is less than a year old. And Stephen Gang is only 29 years old. He's a young guy. And God's going to use him to change the world. 29-year-old guy. So as, as he is in the synagogue and he's teaching in the synagogue, here's the problem. He says, some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, of the Cyrenians and then the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia rose up, disputed with Stephen. Now, I bring in all this up because those are all places where these Hellenized Jews came from. Uh, from the first place, uh, what is it? The Cyrenia, there were 200,000 Jews there. Alexandria in Egypt, there were uh, 400,000 Jews at that time there. And then Asia, and there were these other places that represented Jews from all over. So there were these gathered in these synagogues for the Hellenized Jews, listening to Stephen, and they started arguing with him because... Um, what he was saying uh, meant that Jesus would be the Messiah. And they would come up with their arguments against Stephen, but they couldn't get past his logic. Look at what it says. It says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they hire the witnesses and they make two accusations against him. Number one, that he's blaspheming against Moses and he's blaspheming against the temple which summarizes all of Judaism. Number, basically, they're saying he is undermining our faith. Blasphemy against Moses or blasphemy against the temple would be have a penalty of death if you were convicted of that. Let me look at something here that comes to mind. What do you think? Why would they be concerned? Look at verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Why would they say that if they thought Jesus was dead? Right? Why are you concerned about a dead man that you know is dead, that he could change anything? But they're saying, we believe this Jesus could change. In other words, there was enough witnesses, enough evidence around Jerusalem in that last 11 months that they, they had a pretty good idea that Jesus was alive, that he had uh, risen from the dead, and they're just fighting against reality. So the high priest... He says to Stephen, are these things so? This high priest is the same high priest Jesus stood before months, a few months earlier. His name is Caiaphas. And so he says, okay, what do you have to say for yourself? And now Peter begins the most stellar sermon recorded in the New Testament in terms of of apologetics, defending the faith, presenting the gospel, it's magnificent. We're going to look at it. We're going to look at his arguments. We're going to see it's masterful. And it's the longest sermon in the New Testament with the exception of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So, look, we could read it all or I could kind of paraphrase it for you. 
It's uh, Stephen is going to answer every charge against him. And he's also in the process, he's going to turn all the charges against them and he's going to put them on them. So all the charges they put on him, he's going to turn around and they're going to end up landing on his accusers. It's masterful. You want to hear it? Okay. So I'm summarizing it, okay? So he begins with Abraham, Father Abraham, who's a beginner of the faith. I mean, without Abraham, there is no Israel. There are no Jews. And he says, let's think about Abraham. Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, a very pagan place. He wasn't called out of Jerusalem. He was called as a Gentile. Abraham wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was called out to follow God with no temple, no rituals. He was just following God by faith. And he wandered. He went wherever God told him to go. He owned no property. All he owned was God's promise that God would make of him a mighty nation and a savior would come. That So Stephen's thought is, we believers, we believers in Messiah, we are simply getting back to our roots. Abraham didn't have a temple. Abraham didn't have Moses. Abraham just had faith in God. So we believers in Jesus, we're just back to our original roots. How do you argue with that, huh, gang? So then the next, he, go, he moves next to Joseph. And you know the story of Joseph. Man, we spent a lot of time on his life. But he, he brings up Joseph. You know, he says, now you remember Joseph. Joseph uh, was uh, not received by his brothers. He went to them. He had a message from his father to give his brothers. And rather than accept it, they rejected him. They accused him of uh, doing things he hadn't done. They punished him, th- him for things he hadn't done. They threw him into a pit. Then they sold him into slavery. Uh, they, there, they, in Egypt, they threw him into a dungeon. And all of a sudden, I mean, like instantaneously, within, he was sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. And then trouble came to uh, the children of Israel. Uh, they, they began to experience tribulation, famine, and they used up all their own resources and they were forced to go to Joseph. Initially, they didn't recognize him, did they? But when they came back the second time to Joseph, he revealed himself to them and he gave them all that they needed. In fact, he said, come on to Egypt. Uh, bring the whole family, 75 of them. Bring the whole family, and I'll give you the best land in all of Egypt, and you can live there. Everybody knew that story. Now, this is his point. He says, okay, God, God sent a deliverer to you, and you rejected him. Now, in the book of Luke, Jesus was walking on the way to Emmaus with uh, two of his followers, And they didn't recognize it was Jesus initially, and they were sad telling him what had happened in Jerusalem. Then Jesus revealed himself to them, and they were surprised it was the Lord. And then Jesus gave them a Bible study. And beginning with Moses, through all the prophets, Jesus told them, here, this is talking about me in the Old Testament, and this is a picture of me, and this is a picture of me. And suddenly they realized, wow, Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. Now, that teaching was passed on to all the other believers. So Philip, I mean, Stephen, is taking this message and he is using a parallel with Christ's life. You see, Jesus and Joseph have all these similarities. Jesus was sent from the Father to his brethren with a message, right? He came with a message of love. But his brethren, the Jews, rejected him. They sold him for the price of a slave. He was thrown into the pit, accused of things that he had not done. He suffered for sins that he did not commit. He was placed in the dungeon, you think, the dungeon of death. But suddenly he rose and he seated at the right hand of God. And the Bible says that someday 
The Jews will be in a time of great tribulation and they will be forced to realize that Jesus, their Joseph, that Jesus is the savior of the world. By the way, Joseph's name is Zaphoneth Panea, which means savior of the world. That's his Egyptian name. So they will come and they'll realize that Jesus is their savior. And just like Joseph's brothers had to bow to him, they will all bow to Jesus and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Amen. So Joseph is that perfect picture. And Joseph was given a Gentile bride. And Jesus has a Gentile bride. And that's us, the church, right? So all of these pictures. So Stephen uh, is talking. He's saying, now, look, the people were delivered without a temple, without Moses, without a land of their own, and their deliverer they rejected. It's going to see a pattern here of rejecting those that God sends you, but receiving him the second time. So where he moves on now is he he goes on next and he says, uh, let's talk about what happened after Joseph. Well, those 75 family members grow to be 2 million in the 400 years that they were in Egypt. And by that time, a pharaoh came up that didn't know Joseph. And he and the Egyptians were threatened by this people that kept themselves separate, the Hebrews, the children of Israel, who didn't intermarry with others. There was this whole two million people that that were a threat, they thought. So Pharaoh came up with a way. We're going to curb that population from growing. This is what we're going to do. Every Hebrew child that is born, every male child is going to be killed. Throw them in the river, Nile, and let them die. And so that law was, was passed. But the, here, Stephen says, but there was one baby, a beautiful baby. It literally says that. It's the only time that a, bi, uh, that a baby is described as being beautiful. Okay. This baby was saved by Pharaoh's daughter. And this child, who's his child? Moses. This child is raised in the palace the glory of Egypt, and is given the most fantastic education. He knew everything that there was to know at that time. But when he was 40 years old, it entered his heart that he needed to leave the palace. He needed to leave all that. And he needed to go and he needed to identify with his poor enslaved people because Pharaoh had made all of the Hebrew slaves and was killing them with work. And so he left the palace and he identified with his people. And if you look at verse chapter 7 here and um, look at, uh, uh, let me see, get to chapter 7. Look at verse 25. It says that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. So Moses went to be their savior to deliver them. But they rejected him. If you read the story, they rejected him. Who are you to be Lord over us? They rejected him. And Moses went away for 40 years. At the end of 40 years, Moses came back in power. Remember the rod he had, the miracles he had. uh, He performed in Egypt. Remember that? And he went to his children. He went to the children of Israel this time. And the second time he revealed himself to them they followed him. The story doesn't stop there. It goes on to recall that they were delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness. There in the wilderness, God said to Moses, come up here to Mount Sinai. And there God gave the law to Moses. Tremendous glory, magnificent description in the book of Exodus. But Moses was gone longer than the people down here in camp, the children of Israel in camp down the mountain, were expecting him to be. So after a while, they began to grumble and complain and began to say, we're not going to follow Moses anymore. We don't want to follow Moses. And so they rejected Moses a second time, and they asked Aaron, Moses' brother, to build a gold calf. Build us a golden calf so that we can worship it. 
And so they went wild and crazy with their worship around that golden calf and became idolaters. There's such an interesting comparison as well with Joseph and Jesus, just to point out, when Jesus was born, the king was trying to kill all the baby boys, right? Just like with Moses. Jesus left the palaces of heaven to come to this earth to identify with his brethren, but they did not receive him when he came to them. And so he departed and he's left, but Jesus is going to come back in glory and power, isn't he? And the Bible says again that the Jews are going to see him and this time they will ask him and accept him to ask him to be their savior and redeemer and uh, he will set them free. So there's these parallels. Part of Stephen's point now is, uh, okay, you've accused me of blaspheming Moses. Do you realize that our people rejected Moses not once, but how many times, gang? Twice they rejected him. So don't look at me as if I'm speaking against Moses. Your forefathers that you hold so dear to you, they did exactly what you're accusing me. I mean, they, you're accusing me of doing something. They actually rejected him. I haven't. I'm obeying Moses who said, listen to the prophet who comes and obey him. You are blaspheming Moses, not me. Then he continues. He says, um, you need to understand this too. While our uh, ancestors were in the wilderness, they didn't have a temple. He's taking on the temple now, okay? When our ancestors were in, they didn't have a temple. Instead, they had a tent, a holy tent that they took along with them. And there God would show his glory. And, and that tent, though, went with them. And it could be dismantled and put back together and taken down, put back together. And even when we came into the promised land, the sacred tent was, was used for 430 years. Now, there's one, one last thing I want to, to point to. That is this. Something stands out to me in verse 56. Stephen looks up and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, we're told 23 other times that Jesus is at the right hand of God. But of the 24 times we're seeing, we're told that Jesus is at the right hand of God, 23 of them always say he is sitting at the right hand of God. 24 times, 23 of them, he is sitting. This is the only time where it says he saw the Son of Man, what? Standing at the right hand of God. So we ask the question, why? Why is this different? You know, if it, if it just said sitting, I, I wouldn't have thought anything about it. I would have thought, yay, you know, this is, yes, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. But I see standing. I have to ask why. And I think we're supposed to understand that Jesus is not passive. Jesus doesn't just observe what we go through. Of course, he's God the Son, and, and he sees all things, but, but you need to know that it is personal with Jesus. When you go through some tough time, it's not just Jesus sitting and watching. When you go through a difficult time, Jesus gets up, and he's standing, and he's saying, hey, I'm with you. What are you doing to my child? He belongs to me. She's my child. How dare you? And look, Jesus didn't deal with them that moment, but they, have, they will stand before him someday, and he will deal with them then. You understand? Jesus loves you so much, you guys, that he stands. Anything that hurts you hurts him. Anything that comes your way gets his attention He's your savior. He sticks by you. He's your redeemer. It doesn't matter what happens. Who is with you or isn't with you? He always stands by you. Amen? 
You can trust that. Thank you, Stephen, for reporting what you saw. Because it just gives us more of an insight into the heart of Jesus towards us. Let's pray. Father, the word that you've preserved for us is so wonderful. Thank you that, that we still have this sermon. Thank you for the truths that it's pointed out, for the history that we are reminded of, points that, you've, that have caught us and, and are sticking on us that we're going to walk away with. Thank you for that. Yet, if there's a most of all thing, it would be that we, we understand that Jesus is by us. He stands by us through everything, all the time. Whether we're good or bad, you just don't leave our side. Your son doesn't leave our side. And we're so thankful for that. It's encouraging. It gives us security. It gives us hope. Thank you for your son, Father. And it is in his name that we ask and praise you for these things. And everybody said, amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Amen.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, I don't know if you've watched the news lately or watched any TV. I don't suggest it in that sense. But if you have, there certainly seems to be a lot of commercials on depression and medications that can be helpful to those who are depressed. It seems like there's a lot of people, at least seems like statistically speaking, in America that are depressed. It seems like there's a lot of children, they say, that are depressed. And there's a lot of people on drugs these days because of depression. Now, within the world, it's understandable that people are depressed. If you don't know Christ, life is not going to work out right because you don't know the Lord. You are living in the context of death, and you're going to get angry and you're going to get depressed. That's no doubt. But one of the things we're seeing these days is within the church, many people who are depressed. Many people who are on medication for depression or whatever it might be. And today I want to look in a passage where we're going to see one of God's people who is depressed to the point of wanting to die. But we're going to see within that depression that Jonah was not just depressed, he was angry. And we're going to see the core of anger, we're going to see the the heart of anger, so that we might be convicted and we might learn and we may not be like those who do not know God. So with that in mind, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. And we're going to be really answering the question, do you have any good reason to be angry? And within that context, I believe that the first four verses today of Jonah chapter 4 is going to help us avoid the deadly consequences of being angry. First of all, I want to review the context of the book of Jonah. We've been going through a wonderful book I've been greatly blessed in my study as I've seen God's hand with his disobedient prophet disciplining him and turning him to be obedient. I've been greatly blessed as I studied today's passage in which Jonah still has got some problems and God does not stop working on him. And we see these things are for our instruction that we might not crave evil things, that we might not go the way that those in Israel, including Jonah, did at this time. The book of Jonah is a true story. Is about a real prophet, 2 Kings 14. It's not, as I've shared, a fish story or an allegory. It is most important to note that the Lord Jesus Christ himself affirmed the book of Jonah as being a true story as he declared that the men of Nineveh would rise up against the generation which was going to ultimately crucify Christ and reject him, and they would stand in the judgment because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. He used the truth of Jonah being in the belly of the whale, the great fish, three days and three nights, as a type to what he would do as he would be in the ground three days and three nights. Now the book of Jonah, in the context, we need to recognize there's two threads running that we need to understand, contextually speaking, that Israel being God's people was disobedient and they were on the road to God's great discipline. And the Ninevites, which we see in the book of Jonah, were not God's people, and they were on the road to God's judgment. Now, Jonah was written sometime around 793 B.C. to 758 B.C. during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of the northern kings of the northern ten tribes. If you'll remember, the kingdom was split because of Solomon's sin, and God was gracious to David, so he didn't split it till after Solomon died. We had the northern tribes, the southern tribes, the northern tribes having wicked kings all the way through and ultimately being exiled by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom having basically wicked kings with a godly king every once in a while, ultimately being exiled as we saw in the book of Ezekiel. It was in the late 500s. But we have here a nation that is spiraling towards discipline. Now Jonah's name means dove. He was called a prophet and he was called God's servant in 2 Kings 14. Now, again, Nineveh at this time, they were a bloody people. They were a wicked people. 
Just historically speaking, they were probably one of the most brutal oppressors of those they would conquer. They were the superpower of the day. And they were known for their brutal wickedness. And it would be Nineveh who God would use to bring discipline upon the northern kingdoms. Now, Nineveh, as we saw in Nahum chapter 3, and we're not going to review that, you can look on your own time, but we saw they were a bloody city. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a bloody city full of lies and spiritual harlotry. They influenced the nations, including Israel. Now, just to give you an overview of the book, Israel is spiraling towards discipline. Nineveh is spiraling towards judgment, and then that's where Jonah comes in. We have in chapter 1, Jonah is commanded by the Lord to go to Nineveh and to declare against it because of their wickedness, to declare a message of judgment against them. And Jonah, as you know the story, as we've shared it, he goes the opposite way. He goes to Joppa. He gets on a ship. He goes on his way to Tarshish. But God does not allow him to get far, and he sends a great storm, God's discipline on his people a storm in which everyone on the ship is about to perish, and the pagans call on their gods, plural. And then they try to discern in their pagan understanding why this calamity has come upon them, chapter 1. And they cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. So the captain goes down and wakes Jonah up, who is sleeping in this storm. The boat is about to go under. And he queries him, how could he sleep in the midst of this? And ultimately they find out as they query Jonah through 20 questions that he is one who fears Yahweh, the maker of the sea and land. And they, by the way, are out on the sea and the sea is about to bring them to perish. Now things get worse and Jonah says, well, just throw me over and it'll stop. But the sailors don't do it. They want to save Jonah. They actually have more compassion for life than Jonah does. And at that point, the most wonderful thing happens. These sailors get saved. They throw Jonah overboard and they get saved. They call out to the sovereign Lord of the universe and they worship him. They give him honor. Now at this point, the sailors are saved and the sea becomes calm and Jonah is going down and the scripture says he is swallowed by a great fish. It could be a whale, it could be whatever. It's just a term for a sea creature in a general sense in the Hebrew language. A large sea creature. And then we looked at chapter 2 where we saw what the depths of discipline looked like and we saw the fruit of discipline in Jonah's life. As Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish, he's in the fish praying and he recounts a prayer when he was going down. Chapter 2, he's dying. If you read that prayer, he is about to die. And he recounts that prayer and he thanks the Lord and gives him glory and decides to trust the Lord and obey him ultimately decides to obey the Lord in the midst of the belly of the fish. And at that point, the fish vomits him up on dry land, the end of chapter 2. And then we have chapter 3. Jonah has initially responded to God's discipline. He is willing to obey at this point, although his heart is not right, as we will see. And he goes to Nineveh, this long journey, as we saw last week, chapter 3. And we saw what true repentance looks like. We saw repentance in the life of Jonah. We saw repentance in the Ninevites. When they heard the word of God, the Ninevites believed in God. And we saw the evidence of that repentance. They humbled themselves before God. They called out to Him. They turned from their wicked ways to seek the Lord. And the most amazing thing happened, the Ninevites, this huge city of probably more than a half a million people, it says in chapter 4, which we'll see next week, there was more than 120,000 little ones who didn't know their left from their right. So there was a massive amount of people, and we have the greatest revival ever seen thus far on the earth through the preaching of Jonah. And Jonah's preaching was concerning the judgment of God and that convicted them of their sin and they cried out to the one and only true God. And then we saw that God was a gracious God and when he saw that they had turned from their wicked ways, he relented. God turned from what he said he would do to the Ninevites. What a wonderful truth that God does declare the judgment of those who are in their sin. But if they would repent and trust and believe in him, he will relent and turn. And he did. And we have the men of Nineveh 
the Lord Jesus saying they would rise up and declare in the judgment because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And this leads us to our passage today where we come to chapter 4, a disturbing chapter that ends with a question, a chapter that doesn't seem to fit right. It doesn't bring us to a conclusion, but I think as we go through it, we will see that it brings us right where God wants us to be as we look at the life of Jonah. So would you turn with me to Jonah chapter 4? And we're going to see and have the question answered, do we have any good reason to be angry? And I think we should learn how to avoid the deadly consequences of anger in the believer's life. Now the first thing I think we need to realize as we look at this passage is that the angry man's or woman's core view of God is warped by evil and selfish thinking. If you are an angry man or woman and you are a believer in Christ, your view of God is warped by selfish, wicked thinking. But before you run out in anger, remember the Lord God is gracious and He confronts us in this so that we would not be this way. And we'll see that in the Scriptures. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. This is an amazing set of verses considering what happened in chapter 3. This is a stunning set of verses which gives us an incredible example on how dangerous twisted thinking is in the life of someone who knows the Lord. First of all, we're going to see the outward cause of Jonah's anger. We're going to see the thing that precipitates what goes on on the inside. It says in verse 1, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What greatly displeased Jonah? It's what happened in Nineveh, right? He says, But in contrast to what just happened, verse 5 of chapter 3, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes and issued a proclamation. And it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both the man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each man may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. True repentance. They knew God was angry at them for their sin and they turned from that sin to God and believed in him. It says when God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring on them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. We have a stunning statement here. The greatest revival, the greatest move of God concerning salvation the earth has ever seen greatly displeased Jonah. Now I need to give you a translation of this which I believe is more accurate to the original language. And it's unfortunate that so many versions don't see it this way. The Young's literal translation does, which is not always the best translation, but they do translate it this way. I'm going to translate it literally to you because I think it is very important for how to understand this book as I'll share it later. You could literally say it but it was evil, ra'ah, the word for evil in Hebrew. It was evil to Jonah. The salvation of the Ninevites to Jonah was evil. And then it even says a great evil. And he burned towards it. It was a ra'ah, it was a gadol ra'ah. It was a great evil to Jonah. 
And it says he became angry, or literally means he became hot. Became furious. Now each one of us knows what anger's like, right? We've all been angry at some time. We understand that emotion. Jonah got mad. He got angry. And why? Because the salvation of the Ninevites to Jonah was evil. But it was evil to Jonah. Folks, Jonah is messed up. And in this picture of a messed up prophet, we are graciously given insight because God is so gracious to give us these examples that we would not crave evil things, that we would not be like this. And within this story, I believe God sovereignly is giving us insight into the heart of anger. Why do we get angry? And we'll talk about anger in a minute. What is behind anger, really? Well, first of all, we need to ask the question, is anger a sin? Many people would quote Ephesians 4.26 to say it's not a sin, and let's look at that. If you'd hold in Jonah and move to Ephesians 4, we're going to take a look at that. The Apostle Paul is sharing the truth to the church at Ephesus concerning how we are to behave in Christ with the renewed mind. We're not to be thinking like the Gentiles think, chapter 4, verse 17. We're to be putting off those things and putting on Christ. And then he gives a list of examples on how we are to do this. And he says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, orge, be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Okay, you can be angry for a moment without sin, right? That's valid here, right? But sometimes, you know, there's certainly situations where evil and sin arouse us to anger. We see wickedness, and there may be that momentary anger towards that wickedness and sin, whether it may have been something that we did that was wrong and sinful or someone else did, and there's that momentary lapse where we become angry. But he says, be angry and do not sin. But the command here we see is do not sin which means there is the great possibility within that anger that you are going to sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun, second command, go down on your par or gizmos. Be angry or gay. Do not let the sun go down on your par or gizmos. The alongside anger, just being irritated. If by nightfall you are irritated, you are alongside anger, then you are going to sin. If it hasn't gone down by nighttime, this phrase, don't let the sun go down, don't go to bed without having resolved this issue. And he says and another command, and do not, it's a command, folks, to believers, do not give the devil an opportunity. Don't give Satan a place. It's a tupon, a place. If you want Satan, the enemy of your soul, the enemy of God one who is a murderer and a liar at heart, to have a place, then stay angry and stay irritated. And what kind of place does Satan get in an angry person? The kind of place that we see all the time, where thinking is just not right, where it's not biblical, it's satanic, it's worldly, it's earthly, natural, and as James would say, demonic. It may be as simple as evaluating things within your own wisdom. That's satanic rather than what God says. But whatever it is, you give Satan a place if you are even irritated by the time you go to bed concerning possibly this righteous anger. He's not validating unrighteous anger here at all. Now, so many believers are in disobedience to this command and gives our arch enemy a place by simply being angry or irritated. You've been bought with a great price. You have no right to stay angry. You can't handle it. Whatever the situation, you need to forgive. And folks, if you want to validate your anger in verse 26, I find that often someone who'd say, well, here's why I can be angry, verse 26. They don't read down to verse 31. Let's go down to verse 31 in Ephesians 4. Let all, all, that's all, bitterness and wrath, thumos and anger, orge, and clamor and slander be put away from you. Every bit, put it away. Take it off like a dirty rag as we would see in Scripture. Set it aside. Say no to it. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. 
Renew your mind in Christ. You didn't learn Christ in this way. That's not the way you are. Let it be put away. So Scripture is also clear that in James, as we see, that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Your anger is not going to accomplish anything concerning God's righteousness. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on it. Why? You give Satan a place. You give Satan, the devil, an opportunity in your life. You will be a manifestation of his will in your life and others. If you do this, it's really, really dangerous. Don't do it. So back to our passage, Jonah chapter 4. But it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and he burned towards it. Jonah's a messed up prophet at this point. We saw earlier he was the world's worst missionary where he went the wrong way. And now we see he was given an opportunity to preach the truth concerning the Lord. And ultimately they repent the greatest revival ever. And to Jonah, he's angry. This is the external trigger point that gets Jonah hot. And Jonah gets hot with these things on the outside. Later on, he's going to get hot and angry because God lets that plant die. And something outside of Jonah gets him hot on the inside. Ninevites get saved, he's hot. Plant dies, he's hot. Is this not the case for all of us? It's something outside of us that triggers an internal response, some type of circumstance or situation or person or whatever it is. Things don't work out the way we want, we get angry. Someone says something we don't like, we get angry. I was treated bad in my childhood, we get angry. Finances, family, health, whatever it is, I'm angry. All these things may be true. But the question is, are they evil in the life of the believer? Jonah saw it as evil and not good. And that's the core, as we'll see, of why we get angry. Concerning the Ninevite salvation, why would Jonah be so angry? Why would this guy be so mad at such a good thing? Salvation.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.